We got to uh, really almost the end of chapter 25 last week as we saw the generations of Ishmael in verse 12 of chapter 25 heading up to the next section down to verse 19. Now, if you remember uh, correctly, and we'll just kind of quickly uh, remind you that the book of Genesis is written like an ancient genealogy, that it's telling us these generations, and it's doing it, I believe, on purpose, obviously, um, not by chance or happenstance, but it's designed this way to remind us of what I have called the thesis of the scriptures themselves, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's a good time for us to go to Genesis 3, 15, just how we're in a transition spot here because we just last week talked about the death of Abraham. In Genesis 3, 15, what has just happened, of course, Genesis 3, the end of the good old days, right? The good old days are over in Genesis 3 because sin has entered in and rebellion has come. And in that rebellion, there are immediate consequences. And those immediate consequences come as the Lord confronts Adam and Eve. And then after confronting them, he pronounces his curse upon all of creation. And really you see those, those three there. He pronounces the curse upon the serpent, the curse upon the woman, and the curse upon the man. He pronounces all of these. And in that instance, the great peace that God had provided in the garden for his people... All of that peace was lost when the great disturber of the peace enters in. And he has shaken it up. The disturber has come. And so now the peace between God and man has been broken. When, man comes to, when God comes to walk with man in the cool of the day, Adam's diving behind trees and sewing up fig leaves together because he wants to hide himself from him. And whenever the, the peace that was there between the man and the woman, remember how chapter 2 ended. They were naked. I'm saying it right, not naked. But they were naked and not ashamed. It was this instance of this joy that they had, this bliss, this peace that they had with one another. That's lost as well as Genesis 3 starts to tell. Now there's going to be a battle between husband and wife even, between the man and the woman. And then that peace between man and earth, how God had told him to work and till it, but even in working and till it, he will find his joy and he'll find his strength in it and it will produce. Now the scripture says that you will work hard every day by the sweat of your brow, the muscle of your back. You will fight every day to eat. You'll fight the earth every day to eat and the earth will win. From dust you came to dust you shall return. All of those things now have been, all that peace has been lost now and that's what you see in Genesis 3 as the Lord starts to say, here are the consequences of this curse, of your sin. And in Genesis 3, there 15, he's speaking to the serpent. And as we said at the beginning of this, that this is what is referred to as the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. The first gospel, the first promise in scripture that there's going to come redemption. What's going to happen to the serpent? He says that I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, there's going to be two lines here. It's going to be the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And these two lines are going to continue along throughout history until finally there's going to come one who is going to crush the head of the serpent. There's going to come one who's going to end. He's going to, he's going to, He's going to crush the great disturber of God's peace and restore the peace again. Um, remember, 
just to kind of let y'all know that's Jesus. I just want to let, just, I'm going to spoil it for you. But remember, that's exactly what Paul says in Romans. He said the God of peace will soon crush Satan, right? He's, he's coming to crush him. But he will deal this one who's coming as a serpent crusher. He'll, he'll bruise his heel. He'll deal a blow to him. But he will live and he will crush the head of the serpent. He will crush the head of the serpent. So now... From this point in Genesis, we're looking for the serpent crusher who's coming from the seed of the woman. And that's why this lineage is important. That's why Genesis takes such care to tell us, then such and such was born. Chapter 4, he just goes through Seth and Cain. He starts off. Again, the good old days are over. The very next story is a brother killing brother, right? And so you see that. Chapter 5, 10 generations there going to Noah. And like ancient genealogies, they're written. They're written in such a way where you tell the history, you lay out the genealogy, and then when something important happens during someone's life, you stop and tell that story. And so he does with Noah. And then he goes after Noah because Noah's important because after the flood, now you see the beginning of really what I would somehow term modern history in some ways, the beginning of the nations the beginning of multiple languages, the beginning of what even we have today as we look out through our world happens there in Genesis 10 and 11 and then in Genesis 12. Out of the midst of all of that, God calls Abraham. He's going to, he's going to fulfill his promises. He's going to bring about a serpent crusher, but everybody's been scattered. Everybody's been sent away. Nobody's seeking after God. In fact, in Genesis chapter 7, when it's talking about uh, chapter 6, when it's talking about why the flood came, we see because everybody's gone wicked. And then you get to the Tower of Babel, and you see why they had to be split up is because they were all trying to make a name great for themselves, not for God. They're all trying to prove who they were. And so God splits them up because their wickedness would become, be no end again. And so he splits them up. And so you see that there's no one seeking after God. There's no one looking for him. They've been split up. Language is given. Confusion happens. They spread out over all of the earth as God told them to do. Now he forced them to do it. And so you're wondering, how is he going to fulfill his promise of this offspring of the woman? Because, you know, everybody's gone astray. Everybody's gone. Everybody's scattered. How is he going to do this? And he calls this one man out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, Abraham, who's in the lineage of Noah, who's in the lineage all the way back to Adam, he calls him and he says, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the nations will be blessed. And so those promises then, as uh, if Genesis 3.15 is kind of the thesis of scripture, we're looking for the serpent crusher who'll be finally fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Then those promises of Abraham kind of become the outline of the Old Testament. And so what we're seeing now as we walk through Genesis is how is God going to fulfill his promise? In particular, how is he going to make, how is he going to make these people into a great nation? And he's going to do it through Abraham. We saw with Abraham that it got off to a rocky start. Abraham and Sarah were barren and they could have no children. They messed up a few times trying to take matters into their own hands, and that decision really changed the world, actually. And we saw how that happened, but still yet God was faithful to keep his promises because the main character of Scripture is not Abraham. It's not going to be David. It's not going to be Solomon. It's not going to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. The main character of Scripture is who? God himself. 
And so God is the main character of what happens. And he's going to fulfill these promises all the way through. And he works through even broken vessels. But what happens each time is you think, is Abraham the serpent crusher? And he just proves that he's not. Who's next? Is Isaac going to be the serpent crusher? He proves that he's not. And you see all of these come along until the day that we finally get to Christ Jesus, who was born of a woman under the law, who can free us from sin and death and all of the disturbing of the peace that was brought about by Satan himself. So as we get to this then, you have this question that comes up. Abraham is now dead. The promises were given to Abraham. What happens after he dies? Now you always think about this, right? You got first generation, it was given to him. What happens next? And so really that's where we are in Genesis. What happens next? We saw how God miraculously brings about Isaac through his birth, even though Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead, Bible's words for old people. And so we, see, we saw how that works out, and God miraculously brought the, him, Isaac, around. We saw how Abraham proves himself through obedience, as the scripture says, to, to keep those promises and to trust in those promises. And he proves himself through through the test that was given to him on Mount Moriah. And now we've seen over the last week how everything's paved here for this, how Ishmael has been dealt with in his family, how Abraham is settled in the land and his sins for a wife for Isaac who will come. And then we, uh, who's Rebecca. And now Abraham has passed on. The book of Genesis is split up with this phrase. If you look at verse 12 of chapter 25, these are the generations of. And then you look down in verse 19. We've seen these before. These are the generations of. This is kind of the, the section break, if you will. So it had told us these are the generations of Abraham. Then we walk through that. Now it says in verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael. And it tells us about that as you go through uh, verse 18, I believe. And then it comes down to verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac. Now he's going to tell us about Isaac and his children. Now Isaac and his children are an interesting bunch. The question is, will the promises continue? Will the promises continue? Abraham is dead. What happens next? What happens next? So he says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, and the, Ar the Aramean, and Potam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So off the bat, we begin. And what we learn here is that we have the similar situation that was there with Sarah, right? We have a barren uh, a barren wife who, who can't have kids. And so it says that Isaac prays and she conceives. Isaac, fully aware, I'm sure, of the story of his own mother and, and how she was barren, fully aware of how God opened up the womb for her, having heard that story. And now he prays and the Lord provides. And as uh, Rebecca now is pregnant, she finds out, as it says, that she is going to have Twins. It says in verse 22, the children struggled together with her. So off the bat, it says children, she's having two. The conflict begins in the womb with these two. 
Now, this first section is going to be important. What we're going to see is through the end of chapter 25, it's going to kind of give us the character of Jacob and Esau, the two that will be born to Isaac. Kind of tell us about their character and even give us this this small little snippet, like just a few verses, but very important verses about the birthright and how Esau sells it or gets rid of it. And so it kind of lays that out. And then what we'll see is in chapter 26, we'll stop and we're going to show us that the promises that God gave to Abraham are going to continue into Isaac in his life. So we see here as it comes about, these children struggle. There's twins. She's pregnant with twins. And the conflict between these two start out in the womb. It begins there. And so much so that Rebecca starts questioning God about what's going on inside of her. The, the children struggle together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Now, surely, I don't know if she went down to the clinic to get a little uh, scan to see how many kids she had and what they were. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if that happens. I'm not quite sure if she knew or was aware she was having twins. Maybe they had some way to figure that out. And maybe, you know, you can... Rub the bell. I, I probably shouldn't get into that. But maybe there was some way to figure that out. But surely she knew, especially, especially if she, she didn't understand that she was having twins. And they're fighting in the womb, it says even scripture. They're struggling so much in the womb that she becomes aware something is hurting and in pain. Do y'all know? I mean, Allison's had four kids. And I, I mean, I, you can question that all you want to. But we decided to. And the Lord was gracious. So we've had four kids. I've, I have had four kids. See, you can't say it that way. I've, I found that out. I assist, whatever. And so we were, we were there, four kids. And we used to talk about the alien nature of kids in the womb. Y'all know what I'm saying? How this big bulge would just come out and move around and all this other stuff. And it scared me half to death. And so could you imagine if two of those kids, those twins are wrestling in the womb, it says. They're warring together. And, and so much so that Rebecca starts questioning it and the Lord's going to give her an answer. The Lord's going to give Rebecca an answer like, yeah, it's happening and you need to know why. The Lord answers Rebecca and he says, she goes, why is this going on in my belly, Lord? What is happening? And he says, listen to this answer. This could not have comforted her too much. There are two nations in your womb. Imagine hearing that. You know what I'm saying? There are two nations in your womb. Oh, okay. That explains it. <laughs> There's two nations at war within you, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. These twins here, what he's, the Lord is saying through this, this message to her is that, yes, What's happening inside your womb is not some small thing, but it's actually two nations at war. These two children, your twins, they're not just fighting now. They're going to be fighting for a long time. There's two nations that are at, at war here, and one of them is stronger than the other, and the other will serve that one, right? So off the bat, that's told to her. One of them is stronger, and the other will serve them. So here, what we see then is as this comes forward, it's setting the stage for what's coming between Jacob and Esau. 
If you look over, I mean, you, you're going to find out here how Jacob is going to, to pull, pull a fast one on Esau. And then how that battle is laid out. How Jacob, you're going to spend a couple chapters, how Jacob's having to flee for his life and go and live with his, with his uncle Laban, right? And have to, have to take off. You're going to learn how all of these things kind of work together. So what's happening in the text right now is it's setting us up for what is coming by describing to us the character of these two. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body like a hairy cloak. I, I can't even imagine. So they called his name Esau. The connection here between Harry and Esau is, is connection with the words, but it's rather this is a sound play, really, a sound play between the two with the reversal here of some, some letters within the Hebrew words to show the color meaning red. So Esau coming out being red, and he is going to be the father of the Edomites, which are the red ones, if you will, descendants of Esau. And so it tells us of who these are. The younger brothers coming out the womb, and let's hear how he comes out. Esau comes out red and hairy. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Jacob comes out, the younger one, just literally has to be, if his hand's holding his heel, just a second later. And so the younger brother comes out holding the heel of his older brother, and they call his name Jacob, which is another wordplay, if you will, which gives insight to Jacob's character. The name Jacob is related to the word heel, which can be used in a metaphorical sense for someone who is a cheater or a deceiver, a deceiver. And so now these character traits are described even in their birth. The red and hairy one who comes out first and the one who comes out second holding the heel who is going to live their life out of this. Conflict in the family, this family between Isaac and Rebekah, between Esau and Jacob. Conflict of this family is going to revolve over these next several chapters around these two sons and around their parents because Esau is going to be the favorite one of Isaac and Jacob is going to be the mama's boy. I'm just saying. Jacob's going to be the favorite one of Rebekah. Afterward, his brother came out with Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Now, the way this is used could mean simply that Esau was, a, was one that was a loner. He liked to be out in the field. He liked to do those things. And we find out that Esau was one that loved to hunt and his dad loved the meat that he brought. And so Esau was the loner. He was out kind of probably more a little bit rough around the edges, if you will. The language here used of Jacob is one who was a little more sophisticated. That quiet man was one who was refined. He was taught the good things. He was, had well manners. And so Esau was the rough one. Jacob was the refined one, the one who was quiet, the one who was keeping things at home. You see the characteristics of these two. Jacob, this quiet man dwelling in tents. And so this idea here is he's referring to uh, Someone who is refined and understands, understands these ways of business and other things. And so you have these two characters. When the boys grew up, as it said, Esau 
man of the field, Jacob dwelling in tents. Verse 28 tips the hat as well. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So off the bat, what's happening, I think, in the text is we're setting up for chapter 27. We're setting up this idea of conflict is coming. And we're going to see how that conflict comes next and how these two natures come out in the next little section. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom because he said red, if you will. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now, understanding the nature of the birthright, the firstborn son would receive the inheritance of the father, would carry on the family business. It doesn't mean that the secondborn son would receive nothing. They would receive something, but it would be the firstborn that would receive the inheritance of all of the father's land, of all of his wealth, of all of those resources, and whatever is given to the second son will be funneled through the first son. Does that make sense? The birthright in the family was everything. You were passing on all of your riches. And if you remember, Abraham was a rich fella. And Isaac received his father's wealth. And now you have Esau coming along. And so Jacob recognizes the importance of the birthright. Esau says, I'm about to die. What good is it for me? He considers it flippantly. And so Jacob recognizes the importance of it. Esau his weak in his time as he comes in being hungry. And Jacob plays off of that. I'm about to die. I've what used my birthright. So Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He despised his birthright. Now, it doesn't tell us that Isaac knows this happens, right? This is not something that is telling us that this takes place, and so this is set in stone. Uh, Esau's not going to get his birthright. Isaac has to listen to it. This is what's going on between the brothers, and it's another way, just like these last few verses, to tell us the character and nature of the two. It's telling us who they are and, and what kind of men they were, if you will. And so with Esau, it's important to understand that he cared nothing about the future. He cared nothing about the birthright. He was in the field doing his thing, living in the here and now, and in some ways living for this instant gratification. Now before we consider that and go, what, what a fool, I believe this is a lot to do with what's wrong with our world nowadays, right? Is that so many people live for instant gratification rather than for future glory. They, they, they want it now. They need it right this second. Get it to me in this instant. And sometimes we, we can rejoice that God is gracious and good to give us a blessing in the moment at that time. But we also recognize that nothing that can come to us now compares to what is coming in the future. So we don't want to do anything now to spoil what is coming, right? Esau didn't care. He wanted it now. Give me it now. And you see, even if you go to the end of chapter 26, verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife. 
and Basemeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And so Esau, unlike his father, who went back through Abraham to Mesopotamia to find a wife because God said clearly, don't marry amongst the Canaanites. Don't marry amongst them as to spoil yourself. Unlike his father who did this, unlike even Jacob, we'll find out who goes back to his family with Laban and finds a wife, Leah and Rachel. And so we see, we, we see these things. Unlike them, he settles in for those who are around him, doesn't listen to what should be happening, settles in for those who are around him and marries the Canaanite. Again, testifying to instant gratification. Give me this now. Not caring what else matters. You know that next line there in verse 35, and they, these two ladies, they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This wasn't like the mother-in-law's hard to get along with. These are the daughter-in-law's. And they made life bitter for them. And so Esau, not caring about his father and his mother, only looking to satisfy himself in the moment now in this instant gratification, not looking to marry someone within the family who has the same ideals and follows after the same God as, as, as Abraham called Isaac to do. Now, now he just simply marries those around him. All of this testifies to their character. All of this shows what Esau does. But it also shows something else. It shows that Esau didn't care about the birthright. And the birthright has more in it than horses and wealth and land. The birthright that Abraham had that was passed on to Isaac and now from Isaac is going to be passed on to his children. The birthright they received has more in it than gold and silver and tents and chariots and horses and all of these things the world looks at as important. The birthright he's passing on has the promises of God in it. Has the promises of God. And so that's why the author of Hebrews says, don't be like Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. Don't be like Esau, who for that instant gratification to get a bowl of beans, some stew in the moment, gave up all of the promises of God in the future. In other words, don't be like that till you go after instant gratification. You neglect, you cancel out, you set aside all the glories that are waiting for you in heaven. Because there are things we can do that disqualify us from that, right? And so don't sell it for a bag of bowl of beans. Recognize that the future glory is better than the instant gratification. There's nothing here on earth that can satisfy you like what's coming for us in glory with heaven in heaven. And so here we see that Esau didn't recognize those promises. Now, chapter 26 becomes important then in this sense. It seems odd because if you read the end of chapter 25 and then you jump over to chapter 27, they kind of flow together, right? Esau sells his birthright to Jacob and now Jacob is going to have to come in and deceive his father to get that blessing. So they kind of back up together. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So why is 26 in here? Why does chapter 26, and to be honest, chapter 26 is a little synopsis of Isaac's life. With Abraham, we had like, like 10 chapters, right? You went through chapter 12 to chapter 22, really, going through, and even beyond that, in chapter 23 and 24, with Abraham till he passed in chapter 25. But with Isaac, it's not that long a time. 
Jacob's going to stretch out for several chapters, especially when we get into his kids. But for Isaac, it's just this one chapter. And this one chapter is going to tell us a lot because with Isaac, you see what happens. The birth, you have the sons born. And then chapter 26, verse 1, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. So not the same one that Abraham dealt with. There's a new famine. And this new famine requires them to leave. Y'all remember in chapter 12, Abraham received the promises of God, those three promises. And then what happens immediately after that? Famine comes. And they have to leave the land. And where do they go? Egypt. Y'all remember? And when they go to Egypt, what did Abraham do? He lied. He deceived. He said, Sarah's not my wife. Y'all, 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 y'all remember how that goes? I mean, it was just like last week we did chapter 12. <laughs> last week, last year. So he says, again, you start to see that Isaac's life is starting to lay out like Abraham's did. And then he says, he goes on, Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech. We've seen him before, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, now this is important, verse 2, do not go down to Egypt. This is going to be a question of obedience again. Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, Gerar, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and will give to your offspring all of these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Y'all recognize all of that? Those are the same promises he gave to Abraham. So the question is, what happens to the next generation? The Lord says... The promises just continue. Everything I swore to Abraham is coming about for you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this land. And from you, all the nations will be blessed. Everything I made. God is reiterating his promises here. He's speaking again his promises to Isaac, just like they were to Abraham. So if Isaac had any question, do the promises continue to me? The Lord is shoring that question up. Stay right here. This is your land. Don't go any farther. This is your land. Don't go to Egypt. Don't do like Abraham did. Don't go to Egypt. Stay right here. This is your land. And I'm going to give it to you and to your ancestors. And I'm going to bless the nations through you. This is just what he told Abraham in Genesis 12. The same promises. And so he tells him, stay right here. And then in verse 5, after restating the promises which is the, the, by the way, I think the point of this passage that God's promises continue. They're not dependent upon Abraham. They're not dependent upon Isaac. They're not going to be dependent upon Jacob. They're not going to be dependent upon any of them. They're, they're all dependent upon him. And if you remember, by the way, whenever the covenant was sealed back in chapter 15 and Abraham went, took a deep sleep, what happened? It was God who walked through that covenant promise. And God's saying in that, I'm going to take this on me. Y'all remember that? And so God has sealed this. And so God is keeping this promise even through Abraham and now into Isaac. And he says in verse 5, while God is the one who uh, continues to keep his promises, he keeps them and they are sealed in how we respond to them. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Obedience is the only proper response to God's faithful promises. That's what he's saying here. Look at Abraham then. He's telling to him, look at your father. Your father kept 
obedience to me in light of these promises. And that should be your response as well. And so you see back that Abraham obeyed my voice that harkens back to chapter 22. But then when he does this, my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws, remember that who's writing Genesis? Y'all remember? Moses. Jesus said so. That's right. So Moses is writing this. Where is Moses writing this? He's writing this in the wilderness as they're preparing to enter into the promised land, right? So they're coming in. So a lot of this is a theodicy of who are these Canaanites that we're about to go destroy. He's telling them who they are, where they came from, and why God is sending them to destroy them and, 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 and defeat them. Because he goes back to chapter 12 on that. And then he's also reminding them of how this is not a new thing. The religion that we believe in, the God that we serve, goes all the way back to Abraham. But when he uses this language of my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws, he's speaking to the very people he's talking to in the wilderness. This is looking forward. Those are things that are referred to later in Exodus and, and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Those my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. He's hearkening back. Abraham obeyed my voice. But now there's more than just that. Now we have the law that has been given to us. Now we have the commandments that have been given to us. So obedience to God's word and his commandments is the only proper response to God's faithfulness and his promises. And so God, through his promises, is going to keep them. But God is no pragmatist in this sense. If you don't lean into those, believe those, and trust in those promises, then you don't receive them. So who receives them are those who are obedient to the promises. And what do we learn about Abraham's faith? He's holding his faith up as, as one that is exemplary. But we learned that his faith was kind of shaky, right? I mean, he lied about Sarah, even though God told him that Sarah would have a child. He, he, he took Hagar, even though he knew that the child would come through Sarah. He lied again about Sarah, even though it happened before and he was, he was reprimanded for it. We've seen this. But what we see with Abraham is we see growth in all of these things. Abraham's obedience wasn't always perfect. But we see him growing in this stuff. And so by the time you get to chapter 22, he's ready to hold the knife up and take the life of his son because he fully believes the promises so much that he knows God will bring Isaac back from the dead if he takes his life, as Hebrews 11 says. And so ultimately, Abraham is held up as one who obeyed the voice of God, his charges, statutes, his commands, his laws. And so we should too. And so what does Isaac do? So Isaac settled in Gerar. It's a simple statement. But what did God tell him? He was headed to where? Egypt. But God says, stop here. Stay here. This is your land. And so instead of going to Egypt, as Abraham did twice, he settles now where God tells him to settle. So he settles in Gerar. And when the men of the place asked him, well, y'all get ready for this. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, oh, she is my what? Oh, here we go again, right? Same thing Abraham did. This is my sister. This is my sister. Like father, like son. Fathers, if you don't believe your kids are not watching what you do, right? You know what I'm saying? He's learned this deception even from his father in some ways. And so like father, like son, we see it. She's my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill him because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Almost exactly word for word what happened with Abraham and Sarah. 
When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife, because what person would dare laugh with their sister? I mean, nobody even likes their sisters. <laughs> so Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. I got you. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what laughing meant or what that was code word for, but how then could you say she is my sister? And Isaac owns up to it because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all of the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. How does God work? We do stupid stuff and God still brings about good, doesn't he? I mean, he does something dumb by not trusting again and being deceptive. And God makes the kings tell everybody, if you touch these people, we're going to whoop you. Why? So he's, the king himself is offering up protection over them. And so now, here they are living in the land of Gerar among, under the king of Abimelech, and they are protected by the king only to get the blessing of God all the more. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped the same year a hundredfold. Can you imagine? He's sowing and he's reaping a hundredfold. This is testimony. God made promises. He's going on, keeping them with Isaac. And now this is evidence of the blessing of God, just like it was with Abraham. He's reaping a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, verse 12. And the man became rich, gained more and more until he became very wealthy. Again, a testimony to the blessing of God. Of how he's blessing, how he's blessing Isaac became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds, many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Verse 15 is a parenthetical statement. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth with earth, all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. It's interesting. Because while that's a parenthetical statement, it's in there for a reason. It's saying that God had blessed Abraham and everywhere, if you remember, Abraham's men dug, what happened? Water comes up. If any of y'all had ever had to pay for a well, it's one of the most stressful things you could ever possibly do. As every foot goes down, you're spending more and more cash, right? And you're just longing for some water to pop up out of there. So it's not, it's a, it, now y'all may have this and I don't even know if it's biblical, but my dad's a preacher, right? He's been a preacher for a long time, never heard the man cuss. He's always faithful, just a godly man. And he brought out a guy to find a well with a stick. I told him, that's witchcraft, dad. I'm, you're just dabbling in it. Got to be a fruit tree. You got to hold it a certain way. You got to have all this stuff. Dad said, it worked, Josh. It's got to be a God thing. You know, it's got to be a God thing. And the man walks out in the middle of the yard and that stick just turns down. They dug a hole. There's the water. So I had to be a God thing, right? They even called that stick, what do they call him? A witcher, I think, don't they? Yeah, they, that's the Bible term. They're trying to, trying to dress that thing up. You know how you can, how stressful it is, but when Abraham's men dug, every time they found water. And you see the difference between the Philistines. They go and they do what? They fill it in. They fill in the blessing of God. So what does Isaac do? He starts digging the same wells. He goes and unearths it, unearths it. And every time he digs it out, what does he find again? Water, the blessing of God. Now I love, one of my favorite preachers from the 20th century 
is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book called Revival. Y'all have heard me say this before. We just need to keep digging the same wells, right? That's exactly where this passage comes from. Lloyd-Jones says in Revival, we oftentimes think we can conjure up God's blessing to us. So we do things to try to conjure it up. But in reality, God blesses us when we just keep digging the same wells he's always blessed. We keep worshiping. We keep praying. We keep reading his word and proclaiming it. We keep loving. We keep serving. We do the things God has always blessed. And in his grace, he will continue to bless it. We don't need to find another new spot. Isaac recognized this. My father went through here digging wells and he was blessed. The Philistines don't understand the blessing of God. I'm just going back and redigging the same wells. And so for us, we just dig the same wells because God has already demonstrated his blessing to us. And that's where we look for revival. We pray God to send down his spirit, but we also know he sends his spirit upon those who keep doing the things he's called us to do. Keep doing the things he calls. Just keep digging the same wells. And that's exactly what Isaac does. And it becomes contentious. Isaac here, after doing this, Abimelech said, go away from us. You're much mightier than we are. You're too rich. You got too much going on. Isaac departed from there and camped at the Valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father. I love that passage. Just keep digging those same wells of blessing and God continues to bless. It comes a point of contention. They start fighting over the wells and whose water it is because water is at a premium. And finally, he settles in. From He settles in for, to Beersheba down in verse 23. The Lord appeared to him at the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I'm with you. I'll bless you. Multiply your offspring for my servants Abraham's sake. Just like Abraham before him, God appears to Isaac and speaks to him. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, we've met him before, the commander of the army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Isn't that our desire, right? Is that the people of this world can see God's blessing in our life. See God's blessing in our life. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let them be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and they drank. In the morning they rose and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, We have found water. All of this speaks to God's blessing to Isaac. And in this one little chapter, like he did in the, the 12, right? A chapters about Abraham. In this one little chapter, we see the growth of Isaac from lying in the first part to being faithful in the last part. And we see how obedience works. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. We will make mistakes, but what we need to see in our life as we trust in the promises of God is growth in grace, right? Let's don't make the same mistakes we made before. Let's don't do the same stupid stuff. Let's don't seek after instant gratification like those in the world do. Let's make our camp in heaven where our citizenship is knowing that that's where our investment lies. That's where we look to. 
We're looking to the future glory that comes. And what's here on earth, what we should just be doing is digging the same wells God has always blessed us with. Just be faithful. For God has shown us the way to follow after him and be faithful to him. And he's shown us how he blesses his people in their faithfulness. Because he's always faithful. So let's just keep digging those same wells. And Isaac's life becomes a testimony, just like Abraham's, of one that walked by faith, was not always perfect, but grew in grace, in obedience, and following after him. And God is faithful to bless him, just like he did before. If you were wondering what would happen with the next generation, what you find out in 26 is God has kept his promise, and that promise is eternal, and nothing can shake it. Nothing will change it, and it will continue on until the day, until the day his son would come and seal that deal, right? Jesus Christ, our Lord, where all the promises are yes and amen. And now we are sure and we are certain that those promises are true because Jesus Christ is alive. And he reigns. And so our investment is there. Our investment is there, not here. And we don't look for instant gratification that this world offers. We look for the future glory that Christ does. And what we do today should matter 10,000 years from now in investing in those truths and those things. Isaac's life becomes a testimony. And it ends then with that statement about Esau who despised his birthright. Hebrews tells us, and I close with this, Referring back to this, I referred to this earlier. Strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Don't be like Esau. Don't give up on the glory that is coming for instant gratification that this world offers. Because it's never enough here. And it never will satisfy. Dig the same wells that, re that give us the fresh, glorious water that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is good. Thank you for the truth of your promises that are sure. And help us, Father, to love, to trust, to follow after Christ Jesus with all that we have, knowing, knowing, God, that all of the promises that you have offered are found in him, all for your glory. Help us not to be satisfied with the things of this world, but look to the glory that awaits us and endure whatever may come. Whatever may come our way, we endure it knowing about that glory that's coming. All for the name of Christ we pray. In Jesus our Lord, amen. We'll see you guys Sunday morning. Looking forward to it. Y'all have a great, great week.